we are closing out 20, 2018. And um, if, if you are of age, you know that these days move a lot faster the older you get. Amen. Um, and I can classify myself of age officially now since I jumped over the hill and hit the big 4-0 this week. Praise God. So I can start having all these old men conversations, <laughs> whatever they are. <laughs> but, uh, but this is the time that's normally spent um, in the new year at just thinking about the past and the past year and how this, how this year has progressed, but also thinking about what's in front of us. And, and we normally like to, you know, seal the year off with a couple of New Year's resolutions, right? There's <laughs> a lot of doubters in the room already. <laughs> Haven't even got to 2019 and everybody's like, I ain't doing that, you know? Have you ever wondered what, what, why these resolutions seem to be so hard to keep? Though I mean, that, that there are many reasons, I think, but, but I reflected on that a little bit this week, and a few stood out in particular, a few reasons why they seem so hard to keep stood out to me. One was that most of our resolutions don't feel like life or death, right? I mean, it, <laughs> no, nobody is kidnapping BJ and Elijah and leaving a ransom note at my door that says, get a gym membership or else, right? I mean, it's, you know, so it's like, okay, maybe I'll do it, maybe I won't, but not that really, not that big of a deal. So if I, so if I fail to continue in it by the end of the year, it's all right. No, no harm, no foul. But then, you know, that, that most of our resolutions don't feel very urgent either. I, I, you know, there, there's, there, there doesn't seem to be an time is of the essence sentiment with it, right? I mean, because like you may start off in January and say to yourself that, that you want to look and feel like Captain America by the summer, right? But it's not the end of the world if you look like Lieutenant Mississippi Steel. You know, it's not the end of the world. You, you, you can live with it. You can live with it, right? No big deal. You just, you just keep on going. You, see, you know, I got time to do this. I got time to get in shape. So if I don't get in shape by the summer, no big deal. I'll get in shape later on. So it's not that urgent for us. And then there's even a sentiment sometimes or a reason where most of our resolutions, because they're New Year resolutions, they, that when they're broken, you just say, well, that's over, right? You say, well, I'll just chalk it up to next year and we'll, we'll come back and do this again. Another New Year resolution. And so there's like reasons why these resolutions don't seem to stick, but this kind of attitude probably doesn't make a big deal, isn't a big deal rather, if, if it's just these kind of trivial resolutions that we set. But it becomes a big deal if it's, if it's being connected to our spiritual goals. If we set our spiritual goals and spiritual aims the same way we set New Year's resolutions, and the reasons that we don't keep them seem to fall in the same vein. When I'm talking about spiritual goals, I'm talking about, for example, reading your Bible and, and praying and attending church and wrestling with sin that, that has continued to anchor you and hamper you and hinder you. These goals, sometimes they end up getting lumped in with all the other New Year's resolutions that we have, and we tend to treat them with the same type of fervency if we... Or, or the lack of fervency when we don't keep them. 
We don't sense a true threat. We don't sense a true urgency to them. We don't, and, and, and just like any other New Year's resolution, if we fail in the middle of the year, we say, oh, you know, well, we'll try, we'll try again next year. And so it's, it's with that in mind, I just want to give us a little, I just want to spend a few minutes this morning just, just thinking on spiritual goals, spiritual resolutions, because they shouldn't linger in the same box, right? It shouldn't be just like any other New Year's resolution that we have. They are different. As we view our spiritual aims in life, we should turn all of the thing, all of the reasons that I just gave you, we should turn them on their head. For, for example, the ideal of not really sensing a threat. We should sense a real and legitimate threat. Disregarding them will be a real danger to our spiritual health. Disregarding them for some of us could be danger to our eternal destination. We should sense urgency. Time is far more of the essence than we realize. We should see them as we put them down, as we, as we fail them rather. We should see them not as something to put down for next year. We should see them as every single minute a new opportunity to live them out. Does that make sense? Every minute of every day of our lives, we have an opportunity to walk out these aims that we're pursuing. We have an opportunity to live like Christ has called us to live. And when we fail to do that, we have grace for that minute, for that hour, for that, for that day, or for that number of days of failure. And along with that grace, the calling that has been given to us from God to pick back up where we started. And to continue, or to pick back up where we left off and to continue. As Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he begins by centering the life of the church in sound doctrine and sound teaching. The first three chapters, Paul is centering the church in this ideal of doctrine, making sure that the understanding of the good news is sure and it's firm, and that this and that good news is found in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And he's trying to make sure in the first three that that understanding is solid. He speaks to the nature of Christ in chapter 1. He speaks to the nature of Christ's saving work in chapter 2. In fact, in chapter 2 is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. We hear Paul saying, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of, of disobedience. He says in verse 4, though, however, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. God the Father, rich in mercy, God the Father with rich mercy, God the Father with great love, made us alive together with his Son, whom he sent to die for us and raised us up with that same son and seated us with that same son in heavenly places. By grace we've been saved, not by works. By grace we've been saved. But if you continue on in that passage in, in chapter 2 that Paul Paul gives us this doctrinal doctrinal foundation, he says that for by grace you have been saved, though it is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his worksmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works. So 
we aren't saved by our works, but we are saved for good works. And so by the time we get to chapter 5, Paul is laying out how the life of the church should be reflected in his practice based on the doctrine that he established in the first three chapters, based on sound teaching. This is how you're to live. This is how you are to resolve to live. Moving from what the church teaches to what the church actually does. And in chapter 5, he gives us three practical resolutions to pursue. The first one is walk in love. The second one is walk in the light. And the third one is walk in wisdom. We won't focus on the uh, first two because of time. But I did want to focus on the walking in wisdom because walking in wisdom seems to be a building on to walking in light, and walking in light seems to be a building on to walking in love. For example, Paul says in verse, uh, verses 1 and 2, he talks about walking in love, and then a- and after he says walk in love, he talks about avoiding, avoiding dark deeds, sexual immorality, crude talk. In other words, he says in order to walk in love, we must do what? Walk in the light. And then as he talks about walking in the light, he says, he, he mentions in verse 14, awaking so that Christ may shine on us. Awake, O sleeper. It seems to be a hymn that may have been sung in the church during Paul's day. But he talks about awaking, O sleeper, so that the, so that Christ may shine on us. In other words, walking in the light. But then he moves from walking in the light to verse 15 where he says, look carefully then, in light of being woke. The real woke. In light of being woke, walk in wisdom. So resolve, not just New Year's, resolve every day, resolve every minute to walk in the wisdom of God. It says in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Let's establish a few things. First, wisdom is more than knowledge. It is knowledge of God applied. Knowing and not applying is not wisdom. And not only is it knowledge applied, but it is timely knowledge applied. Wisdom is not just knowing what to say or do. It is knowing when and how to say it or do it. And holding the conviction to actually say it or do it. Paul's call to walk in wisdom is a call to walk in a constant and careful evaluation of ourselves. A call to self-examination. Look carefully then how you walk. Right? I mean, we look carefully at how people walk. Other people, right? We look carefully at our Facebook friends and how they walk. Paul is saying, look carefully how you walk. Carefully. There's a word of caution there. Careful. Look, look carefully. In other words, in Paul's mind, walking absent of wisdom is a deadly proposition. There's a real threat in not heeding his resolution. So, what, so as you reflect on that, what is your method for checking yourself this morning? What is your frequency for evaluating your own life? How often do you just stop and pause and say, God, how am I looking? How am I looking right now? 
How am I treating neighbor today? How am I loving my spouse? How am I rearing my children? How often do you just pause and just, and just look carefully at how you walk? What is the measuring stick for how you are measuring this walk? What ruler are you using? God's word or pop culture? Dr. Phil? And what, what, are you, what are you doing? How, how are you measuring this walk? And, and are you evaluating your decisions, the, the daily decisions that you make, the daily reactions in your life? Are you evaluating those things or are you just kind of winging it? Just whatever happens, happens throughout the day. Paul gives us this single statement, and out of this single statement, he begins to lay out a practical guide for wisdom in the Christian life. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. And so for this, for this resolution, Paul gives us this first sub-resolution, which is to guard our time. Wisdom can't be exercised without the proper use of it. You tracking with that? The days are evil, meaning that our time here is not long. So again, there is a legit threat. There is a legit urgency to this resolution. Resolve to guard your time. Resolve to walk in wisdom because not resolving to walk in wisdom leads to consequences. We simply don't know how long we have because the days are evil. In other words, evil days are shrinking your time. For Paul in the Ephesian church, when he mentioned the days are evil, they probably would have thought directly about persecution. And so he was saying, live in light of the fact that, man, we are being persecuted everywhere, so, so some of us won't be here very long. There's a possibility we're going to go home to be with the Lord quicker than we anticipated. But the evil days are also shrinking your time and my time. Not by persecution, but by causing us to focus the most energy in the time and, and most of our time on the things that matter the least. If you were to add up all your time spent on social media this month, gaming, Netflix, Hulu, internet surfing, uh, entertainment reading versus the time you spend on growing in Christ or pursuing growth in Christ, laboring with Christ or for Christ, praying to Christ, learning about Christ. If you took those two categories, what would be the percentage difference? Now, I'm not making that statement in judgment because I, too, need some evaluation in this area. Amen? I say this to help us recognize that just because our days aren't evil in the sense of persecution doesn't mean that our evil days aren't shrinking our time. Our evil days are evil because they drown us in a focus on ourselves and in a focus on meaningless things. Our culture has conditioned us to know more about Kim Kardashian's life than we do Jesus's. The evil days are shrinking our time. 
And so in the words of Congresswoman Maxine Waters, we must reclaim it. We must reclaim our time. In Don Whitney's book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, he spends a little time speaking about this verse, and he says, even without the kind of persecution or opposition known by the Christians of Paul's day, the world we live in is not conducive to using time wisely, especially for the purposes of spirituality and godliness. In fact, our days are days of active evil. There are great thieves of time that are minions in the world, the flesh and the devil, that are minions of the world, the flesh and the devil. They may range in form from high-tech, socially acceptable preoccupations to simple idle talk or ungoverned thoughts. But the natural course of our minds, our bodies, our world, and our days leads us toward evil, not toward Christ-likeness. Our bodies are inclined to ease, to pleasure, to gluttony, into sloth. Unless we practice self-control, our bodies will tend to serve evil more than God. We must carefully discipline ourselves in how we walk in this world, else we will conform more to its ways rather to to the ways of Christ. The use of time is important because time is the stuff of which days are made. If we do not discipline our use of time for the purpose of godliness in these evil days, These evil days will keep us from becoming godly. Knowing our natural bend, folks, knowing our natural bend to spend the bulk of our time in the trivial, we must actively and vigorously aim to spend our time investing investing in the eternal. You won't just lay down, okay? Let me share this with you. You won't just lay down and just all of a sudden wake up with great vision and vigor to all the work that the Lord has set aside for you. That has to be fought for. You know what you're going to lay down and feel? Netflix. Are you tracking? So walking in wisdom means the active pursuit, not a passive one, because passivity won't get it. If you have resolved to walk out certain spiritual aims going into this year and you fail during this year, don't place them back on the back burner and say, oh, we'll come back next year. No, time is too precious for that. Get back up and pursue them again, seeking God's help and seeking God's strength to accomplish them or keep them. Make this a fight because passivity won't cut it. He says in verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In this walk of wisdom, Paul also calls us to resolve to understand what the will of the Lord is. And what, is, what does he mean by that? Well, oftentimes when, when the apostles wrote to the church about understanding the will of the Lord, they often are walking in the will of the Lord. They often wrote connecting that idea to being unstained by worldly and earthly passions. To take your focus out of the world and to put your focus in the kingdom. Walking in the will of God is often seen in scripture as a commitment to stand apart from the world. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality and that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. 
not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And so he talks about this ideal of being set apart as walking in the will of God is walking in our sanctification, walking in a way that, 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 that demonstrates that we are not like everybody else. Are you tracking? We may look the same and work the same jobs and go to the same schools, but we aren't like everybody else. And so walking in, walking in God's wisdom is also walking in, under, in, in the understanding of his will. And walking in the understanding of his will is walking in that understanding that you, you are not like everyone else. You're different. You're set apart. You're called by him, for him. Are you tracking? He talks about in, in 1 John chapter 2, he says, For all in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, that's not from the Father, but it's from the world. He says the world is passing away uh, with his desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so the ideal is that the will of God is counter to all the things he just mentioned. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life. None of that is the will of God. It actually runs counter to all of those things. And so walking in the will of God seems to be walking away from the love of the world. You tracking with that? Walking in the will of God seems to be walking away from being governed by the desires of the flesh, that being our appetites, our gluttony or greed or sexual immorality and addictions. It seems to be walking away from that, not walking to that. Walking in the will of God seems to be walking away from the desires of the eyes, that being not being governed by our affections, what we, what we see we must have. Walking in the will of God seems to be walking in a direction where we are satisfied in what we've been given. Namely, and most importantly, him. Walking in the will of God seems to be walking away from the pride of life, that being uh, governed by our ambition, our desire to be great simply for our sake or simply for greatness sake. Walking in the will of God seems to be a godly ambition that seeks to make his name great. You understand? So walking in the will of God is pursuing or being governed not by our not by our selfish ambition, not by our selfish appetite, not by our selfish affections, but it seems to be governed by pursuing God's kingdom and God's and God's will and God's work for our lives. How are you cultivating that kind of lifestyle today, in this minute? What steps are you taking to cultivate that lifestyle? What steps are you taking to live a life separate? Didn't say you wouldn't be in it. Of course you're going to be in the world. But what steps are you taking to ensure that you never remain of it? You see, you can't pursue the will of God like you desire to pursue it by flooding yourself with the patterns of the world. You have to cultivate godly patterns in order to understand and pursue God's will. This gets back to the ideal of resolutions, right? Those resolutions, those spiritual resolutions, they're healthy. They aren't trivial. You want to grow and read, you want to learn to read your Bible more this year, or you want to grow and read your Bible more this year? That is healthy. You should pursue that because as you pursue it, you are moving closer to God's will and moving farther away from love of the world. You want to up your prayer life this, this year? That's fine. Pursue that. <clears throat> In the power of the Spirit. 
Because in doing so, you are moving farther away from the world and you are moving more in line with the will of God. You failed at that this year? That's all right. God died. Christ died. And in his death, our failings have been forgiven. Get back up and continue. Because in so doing, you are drawing yourself or you are moving farther away from the world and more in line with the will of God. He says in verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Wisdom is the ideal of sobriety. Or wisdom is found in the ideal of sobriety, sober-mindedness, clear-mindedness. Instead of being filled with something that clouds judgment and something that impairs decisions and something that eliminates our ability to be in control of our faculties and our mind, only to be satisfied for a brief moment. Instead of that, instead of being drunk, Paul calls us to a higher Standard of satisfaction. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, there is where relief is. You think relief is found behind the bottle, but no, no, no. Being filled with the Spirit, there is where relief is. Paul's call to wisdom here is to, is to tell us not to be filled in the temporal, not to be filled in the, in the, in the trivial, not to be filled in, in, in the things that only offer momentary satisfaction. Because see, this, this ideal of drunk with wine, a lot of us, we fix on this. Let me tell you something. There's a lot of other things we can be drunk on besides wine. Are you, are you tracking with that? We can be binging on endless hours of Netflix. Does that make sense? Binging on endless hours of social media. So Paul is saying, stop looking for your satisfaction in the trivial. Move beyond that and find your satisfaction in the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And then he rolls out these things that, that, it, that, in other words, what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? He says a couple of things that I think are important. He says, one, praise collectively. Says, says, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with, our, with your heart. Be filled with the Spirit by praising collectively. God is moved by our praises. He is enthroned on our praise, according to Psalm 22. Paul and Silas were delivered from prison while they were singing praises to God. But God is not only moved in our praise, we are moved in our praise. We are moved towards God in our praise. Our hearts are centered on what's really and truly important. That's why singing carries such a, such a prominent place in Scripture, because it moves us to God. Does that make sense? Paul doesn't just give the command to sing to God, though. Notice what he says. He says, sing to one another. Sing to one another about God. And sing to God about God. But, 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 but this idea of corporate worship comes into play, doesn't it? You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, I don't really need to go to church. Well, who are you going to sing to? 
<laughs> Paul said, sing to one another. So, so who are you singing to if you don't go to church? The idea here is that Paul believes not just simply that our songs to God are fruitful for us and being filled in the Spirit, but when we come together collectively and we sing those songs to God also to one another, he believes that is fruitful in being filled with the Spirit. And you know this is true. Come on. How many people have been to a football game? I mean, something as trivial as a football game, you get enough people in a room and everybody starts singing whatever fight song that they're singing, and all of a sudden you feel like you, you died and went to someplace special. And it's nothing but a pigskin out there. Everybody's kicking around and catching. But all of a sudden everybody's like, oh, my goodness, this was like the greatest day of my life. Right? Why? Because you had 3,000 people in a place singing and cheering and hooting and hollering. And then those same people go to church the next day. You can't get them to, you can't pry their mouth open. They say, well, you know, I'm just a private person, man. I'm just a private. Man, you were just shouting the building down yesterday. What are you talking about? You're a private person. There, there is value, spiritual value. If there is temporal value in that, then certainly when we sing about the eternal, And we sing about, and we sing about the, 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 the all-encompassing and the all-powerful. Certainly there is value for our souls in that. Praise encourages us in the Lord and it encourages those around us in the Lord. And so there is value there. But he also says in verse 20, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, thanking constantly, praising corporately, thanking constantly. Being filled with the Spirit means to live a life where you are dwelling not on what you have but what you've been given. To not live your life in a constant gripe. Are you tracking? But to stop and pause and think on what God has given you. Giving thanks, listen, always and for everything. Does that leave room for anything else? No, all the time. In everything, give thanks. And then submitting humbly, that's walking in the Spirit. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Praising constantly or praising corporately thanking constantly, submitting humbly. Laying your life down for the sake of others is to live a life filled with the Spirit, and to live a life filled with the Spirit is to walk in wisdom. Deferring to others, giving up your will for the sake of others and for the good of others. So, as we close, let's just think about this for a second. How does he he tie all of this in? It's interesting because everywhere, we, we see it in chapters 1 through 3, which we, didn't, which we didn't delve into. But in chapters 1 and 3, before he even gets to this ideal of how we should live, he talks about what has been done, right? And then by the time you get to chapter 5, you hear these commandments. You hear these, you hear these resolves. Walk in love. Okay, 
Okay, Paul, we'll walk in love. But he says this, walk in love in verse 2 of chapter 5, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. In other words, he's saying, let your love be rooted in the work of Jesus Christ. He says in chapter 5, walk in the light. But then he says, therefore, do not become partners with him, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. In other words, since Christ has brought you into the light, walk as children of light. In other words, he's rooting it again in the work. Christ has done this, and so out of that, this is how, you, this is how you're to live. And so even in this walk of wisdom, we heard him say before he got to that, before he gets to verse 15, he says in verse 14, therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. Christ will shine in you. So now that Christ has shined in you, walk in wisdom. Does that make sense? So all of this is rooted in what Jesus has done for us. Even when you look at the the filling of the Spirit, he says that you're singing these praises to the Lord. He says that you're offering thanksgiving in the name of the Lord. He says that you are submitting to one another as out of reverence for the Lord. And so everything is rooted in Christ. And so you know how New Year's resolutions are, right? Where it's all willpower. We're just trying and trying and trying you know, because, I don't know, I just want to be a better person. Well, I'm not, I'm not giving you any of this just so you can be a better person. Does that make sense? I'm giving you all of this because Christ died for us. Why, why, why should you live differently? Because Christ died for you. Why should you walk in wisdom and look to apply God's knowledge in your life? Because Christ died for you. Why should you look to offer praise corporately? Why should you be excited to come to church and to gather with his people and celebrate Jesus? Because he died for you. I don't know any Mississippi State player that's done that for me. And even if they did, it wouldn't be worth as much as Christ dying for me. So why is it that there is so so much difficulty in me singing celebration to him if I can offer it to State? All of it is rooted in Christ dying for you. And so you resolve to do it because of what he's already done. You track it. You resolve to do it because of what he's already done. And if you make that, right, your North Star, If when you find yourself failing, if you look back to what he's done, there you'll find strength. If you make that the aim, the motivation, then it will empower each and every single resolve that you make for him in this life. Amen.